0: been estimated that people who typically don't get enough restorative sleep will consume close to 300 extra kilocalories each day. That adds up in just 10 days to a pound of body fat. You know, play that out over a couple months and you see what happens. Then that body fat further increases inflammation and further compromises our decision-making ability.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Health Theory. I am here with Dr. David Perlmutter, who's making his second appearance on the show. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome.
0: Delighted to be back. I I miss being uh, sitting next to you. That was a lot of fun. It was a great day, but it's just uh, also very delightful to be connected this way as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. I do wish we were sitting together, but uh, it's been so much fun reading the book, and as I was saying before we started rolling, the book, Brainwash, is terrifyingly prophetic. Uh, you talk about disconnection and the impacts on the brain. We'll be talking a lot about the brain today, how we can you know, really get it ready uh, to work optimally, which is a big thing for you. But it's just freaky that you wrote that before we went into sort of the ultimate of isolations. Um, and I want to start with something that you wrote in the book a very early question that you pose, which you, I think, said in the book is is pretty much the backbone. And that's why is health and happiness so elusive?
0: I think in a word, I would say disconnection. And, you know, we really uh, took that apart in, in the book. We really unpacked this, the whole meaning of disconnection. You know, it's funny because as I recall, Uh, That's how we left our conversation last time, isn't it? We were talking about this whole notion of disconnection from our genome, from our microbiome, and now we see that people are disconnected from each other. And we also see an incredible degree of polarization, which uh, I think none of us was ready to really uh, experience. I mean, the degree of polarization that has happened as a consequence of this stress upon the system pulled two sides apart, and we've defined two types of, two populations of individuals, who believe, some believe A and some believe B. And we are losing a type of empathy called uh, cognitive empathy, which gives one person, let's say me, the ability to think of Tom Bilyeu's perspective, or to embrace your perspective. Try it on and see how it feels, even though I don't agree with you. We don't have that anymore. It's my way or the highway. I dig my heels in, Anyone who doesn't agree with me, we're going to, you know, rally against. And again, I'm not taking a particular side. I mean, it may be that the world is flat and I'm willing to listen to a discussion about what is your narrative. But we don't see that anymore. You know, we we talk about people going to uh, Congress and saying they're going to reach across the aisle. That's what we want. We want to just reach across. the aisle. They, You may not uh, agree with what happens on the other side of the aisle, I would submit we've got to get rid of the damn aisle. We have to just – why don't you give people seats according to where they land in the alphabet and let them sit next to people that they don't agree with. Let them talk it out. The, what the I find interesting we, about
1: your approach – sorry to jump in. But what I find the interesting about your approach in the book is that, one, this is all coming from um, a neurology perspective. So you're actually looking at the brain. And one of the most fascinating elements were, one, how you define – disconnection i think it's important to stop you actually have an image in the book and it's like this trifecta of things which i never in a million years if somebody said our problem is disconnection i would not have thought that really sort of cellular explanation for what's happening and how that as we get chronic illness and chronic inflammation that it actually inhibits our ability to access the part of the brain That gives us that executive function, the ability to do things as thoughtful as reach across the aisle. So if you can, just walk us through, how are you guys, you and your son who co-wrote the book, how are you guys defining disconnection?
0: And good on you, uh, because you got it. Uh, Obviously, you got it. We identified the brain mechanics, the substrate, if you will, uh, for disconnection syndrome that you know, it began with our discussion in this very room, I might add, with, uh, of how we make decisions. Do we make an, uh, our decisions impulsively, or do we think them through? Are we reflexive, or are we reflective? And we realize that there are two important areas of the brain, many areas involved, but two important areas, the amygdala, which is a kind of a primitive, fight or flight, sudden response area uh, that really serves only me, isn't involved in empathy, isn't involved in how my actions affect other people, what the future outcome may be of my actions. And then another area that is sort of our gift as humans, and that is the prefrontal cortex. Other animals, other mammals have a prefrontal cortex, but it's a third of the cortex of the human brain, which is an awful lot. And that allows us to take a deep breath, to look at data, to think of how our choices affect ourselves in the future, how they affect other people, how we can be empathetic towards others, compassionate, and have this thing we just mentioned, cognitive empathy, to take another person's viewpoint. The important part of the disconnection is that this prefrontal cortex, let's call it the adult in the room, exercises what we call top-down control over the amygdala. And that begins to develop around age five years or so, Teenagers still don't have a fully developed connection, so they're still a little bit disconnected why they make decisions that aren't necessarily always good ones, but we all retain some sort of impulsivity, if you will, directed by this primitive reptilian brain, the amygdala. Hopefully, though, as we mature, the adult exercises more and more control over our impulsivity. We make better and better decisions that think about not just ourselves, but other people. Think about their points of view. Think about how my actions are going to play out in the future in terms of choosing what to eat today choosing whether i exercise or not choosing all kinds of things that have an impact not on only on me but others and even on the planet we therefore fundamentally rely upon the connection of the prefrontal cortex behind the forehead to the amygdala in between your ears uh, to keep it in check to keep that you know capricious Uh, impulsive child in check, and that's the top-down connection that we need to cultivate. Now what threatens that connection and leads to disconnection syndrome, leads to us being impulsive, I want it now, I don't care about you, it's my way or the highway, are many factors. Uh, Not the least of which uh, is a very important mechanism called inflammation. You and I have talked about inflammation before in the context of brain disease in the context of things like coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer, obesity, Alzheimer's. The very same inflammation threatens that connection. It's also threatened by what we are bombarded with when we're having our online experience. It's threatened by stress, it's threatened by the evening news. So many factors threaten to basically lock us into impulsivity, and what's so worrisome is Acting impulsively strengthens our connection to the impulsive center of the brain and further disconnects us. Because of neurons
1: that fire together, wire together, or something? That's
0: Hebbian philosophy. Uh, Dr, Dr. Hebb, Canadian researcher, talked about that. And, you know, the more you do something, the more you do something. The Dalai Lama said that the brain we develop reflects the life we lead. And he also said, interestingly, that if you want to. Uh, experience uh, happiness, practice compassion. If you want others to experience happiness, practice compassion. So what you said is so true that doing things, choosing to do things, to act in a more compassionate, empathetic, forward-thinking way does what? It strengthens our connection to that gift, this prefrontal cortex, and allows us to act in mature, thoughtful ways.
1: You give a really cool example Uh, In the book of what happens when that connection is um, abruptly severed as a way of really explaining what's going on. And it's something I've talked about on the show many times. I don't think you and I discussed it, but uh, Phineas Gage. So for anybody that doesn't know Phineas Gage's story, he's working on the railroad. They use like these explosives to um, use on tamping rods, basically. And he hits a tamping rod. Something goes wrong and it shoots up under his cheek and out through the top of his head. Now, I'd heard that a million times. And in your book, you said, oh, and the rod is now on display in a museum in Harvard. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. I need to look this thing up. I had no idea that you could see it. And there's photos of Phineas Gage, who by the way, never lost consciousness. And he goes from, everybody was like, hey, this guy was really nice. And if he had plans, he followed through, he wasn't impulsive. And then after it, all of a sudden now he's impulsive, he can't hold down a job. And in the book though, you go into something that is never talked about with Phineas Gage. Mm -hmm. And I found this so interesting. If you don't mind walking us through that part, I think it will give hope to people who are impulsive now and feel sort of hopeless.
0: Good point, and you know, so this is an interesting story that I think a lot of people have quoted of Phineas Gage back in 1858. Who, you know, how he survived this is, is is breathtaking, and not just the bar, but his skull is on display at Harvard to this day. And he became suddenly impulsive, irreverent, and nasty. Couldn't be around other people, and uh, you know, the the um, wonderful part of the story that I thought we really needed to uh, bring to people's attention is the fact that years later, he turned out to be a nice person again. And what does that mean? It means that we have this ability to rewire our brains. We have the ability to, yes, grow new neurons, but also through what is called neuroplasticity, we can make new connections and reroute defective wiring. Now, you know, here's a man who essentially loses his prefrontal cortex and regains functionality. So we included that in the book exactly for the reasons you stated, to give people hope. Because make no mistake about it, our day-to-day lives right now threaten our prefrontal cortex and threaten the connection of the prefrontal cortex down to the amygdala and therefore threaten to disconnect us. Whether it's lack of sleep or a high inflammatory type of diet, and read the modern Western diet, uh, stress, lack of nature exposure, lack of exercise, uh, e- even the various types of, of subnutrients that we consume. So many factors conspire to sever that connection, to drive an iron rod through our prefrontal cortex, if you will. You know that's a you know obviously a very graphic example, but in in many ways, what we've seen in the past year, Uh, is a lot of impulsivity, is a lot of behavior based upon acting without self-regulation, without the input of the prefrontal cortex. Making decisions based upon emotion and, uh, you know, as opposed to taking a step back, looking at what, you know, authoritative uh, figures are trying to tell us, and then making our decisions. Now, let me just be clear, Tom, We need sudden impulsive decisions, that's for sure. That's the beauty of the amygdala. You know, you're backing your car out of the driveway and your eye catches something in the rear, in the backup camera, a kid on a tricycle. Now that's not when you wanna sit back and think, gee, (laughs) kid on a tricycle, probably a good idea, lift my foot off the gas and put it on the brake, because you know, that's gonna have a good outcome. No, you wanna act suddenly, impulsively, call it reflexively, if you will, and you do then you realize what the heck just happened, and you say, thank goodness I acted that way. The problem is, though, that people these days seem to be acting that way without restraint uh, at the drop of a hat, and again, so many of the influences on that activity are under our control. We can pull ourselves back from that and regain this valuable gift that we have as humans, and that is the connection to this prefrontal cortex.
1: So you do a phenomenal job in the book of walking people through sort of the cellular mechanisms of why things are breaking down. And then in the end, you tell them, okay, so this is how they break down. This is how we build them back up the right way. Um, I want to follow that format a bit and walk people through cellularly what's happening like you. You made a statement in the book that um, two, in fact, I'll, I'll walk through both. One was a quote of Gary Taubes, which I thought was really interesting. And then you bring it together for the reader. So the first one is Gary Taubes saying, hey, we don't get fat because we overeat. We overeat because we're getting fat. We're getting fat. Now, I, I want people to really like stop and think about that, that there is a signaling going on or a hormonal thing that's happening. And then you follow it up to bring it back to your point about disconnection, where you say that, the actual increase, the increased volume of our fat cells stops us from having access to our prefrontal cortex. So walk people through how on earth that could be true.
0: Sure. Let's first talk about Gary Taub's statement that people uh, aren't getting fat because they overeat. They're overeating a decision because they're getting fat. Body fat is pro-inflammatory. Inflammatory chemicals threaten the connection, the top-down control, the decision-making apparatus that we have from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, such that we make more impulsive food decisions and we cannot easily self-regulate. So that's the reason he made that statement, why we included it, because the fatter people get the less able they are to rein in their uh, appetites and to make good uh, choices as it relates to the foods that they they eat, that creates, uh, please forgive the pun, a feed-forward cycle whereby eating the wrong foods tends to beget further eating of the wrong foods. Let me give you another example. And we've all been through this. I mean, certainly uh, anybody who's done a residency program and has been up all night, you realize that the very next day you eat whatever you can find. Uh, And they're not good nutritional choices. By and large, people who don't get a restorative night's sleep have as much as a 60% higher activation of their amygdala. So the amygdala takes charge. So that takes charge in terms of the foods we eat, in terms of everything we do that very next day. We've all missed a night's sleep. And you realize how cranky you are, but you make bad decisions. So those decisions extend to our food choices. And what happens? We eat high uh, sugar foods, uh, foods that we know are not good for us, but we just can't control ourselves because the amygdala has taken control. There's a five-year-old making our nutritional decisions for us. It's been estimated that people who typically don't get enough restorative sleep will consume close to 300 extra kilocalories each day. That adds up in just 10 days to a pound of body fat. You know, play that out over a couple of months and you see what happens. Then that body fat further increases inflammation and further compromises our decision making ability. I remember when I'd be up all night uh, during residency, we would, you know, we'd be in the operating room all night long with who knows what. I mean, gunshot wounds to the brain, you name it. And the following morning, the only place I could get what I I felt I wanted was I would go to the pediatrics floor and I would open the refrigerator and get baby food. Now in those days, baby food was loaded with fructose, uh, sucrose and high fructose corn syrup, because they felt that uh, that would get babies to really like it and moms would be happy because kids would be eating the baby food. The banana one especially was so good. But I knew even back then that wasn't good for me, but I, I literally could not control myself. And You know, I think that we all recognize that when we've not gotten enough sleep, that we make bad decisions. Now, here's what uh, really looks worrisome, and that is, you know, about 50 percent of Americans will indicate that they don't at least once a week get enough restorative sleep and feel that experience the next day and understand that as you gain weight, you sleep, your risk of having bad sleep is increased. Your risk of having sleep apnea, the risk of having other issues related to poor sleep increases, so we could play on Gary Taub's statement and saying uh, we don't uh, sleep poorly because we're getting fat, we're getting fat because we sleep poorly, or vice versa. Think about it, the more you don't sleep well, the fatter you'll get, the worse you will sleep well, and the worse will be your food uh, choices decision making, but it's not just related to those lifestyle issues. It's really decision-making across the board that, that, uh, this impacts
1: who in the book, you guys call your shop pretty early and say, you know, when we first started researching this book, we never would have guessed where it was going to take us. And we realized pretty early on that we'd stumbled onto something that was really, really big. And reading the book, it is, it's what you just walk people through. It's a pretty terrifying positive self-reinforcing loop where one bad decision begets another begets another begets another and you talk about um big food big ag and so when i think about what was the the you know that first push that gets this sort of negative cycle going and i mean you lay it out man like the number one thing that people say that they eat for breakfast is cold cereal that's already terrifying uh and so things that people think that they're eating that are healthy end up being wildly problematic. Now, is this a function of inflammation? Like if we were going to yes. lay something. Okay, so now let me push that even further. Do you know the mechanism that's happening? Like why does inflammation stop the, the effective communication between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex?
0: It's a very good question and it's not been fully teased out. Has it been validated? You bet. It's been aggressively validated and there are plenty of hypotheses. We know that by and large, connectivity in the brain beyond this circuitry, uh, but the connectivity that allows us, for example, to recruit previous memories, to recruit other engrams in our past, uh, to uh, help us make decisions today, uh, are compromised by the process of inflammation. So in a global sense, inflammation compromises brain function now this uh, pathway is exceedingly active or at least it should be so it is extremely threatened by a inflammation b lack of adequate amounts of fuel adequate uh, ability to utilize glucose for example Uh, but specifically you know the relationship through inflammation i think is still being teased apart inflammation has other uh, effects uh, in terms of the brain and, and certainly in terms of our behavior Inflammation threatens our ability to manufacture uh, a neurotransmitter called serotonin. I hate to call it the happy uh, neurotransmitter, but we know that there's evidence that suggests that serotonin activation in certain pathways does tend to be related to things like depression. And it's the reason we have SSRIs, which are only minimally effective, but how incredible it is that the the use of SSRIs has increased 400% uh, since the late 1990s. I'm just going to say correlates with some incredible dietary changes that have happened, uh, you know, in, in Western cultures. But that said, inflammation, getting back to our topic, changes a biochemical pathway by which tryptophan is made into serotonin. And this is called... I don't mean to be too technical, but it's called the kynurenic acid pathway. I'll tell you why that's important. So in the presence of inflammation, tryptophan can go one way, make serotonin, or it can go another way to make kynurenic acid. If there's a lot of inflammation, it's taken away from making serotonin, less serotonin now, and goes into measuring kynurenic acid. So you have a buildup of kynurenic acid, which threatens nerve transmission and that may also be a player in the connection you asked about between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. You can measure kynurenic acid. There are laboratory med- uh, laboratories that your doctor can do a blood kynurenic acid uh, on you right now. I mean, it's nothing really exotic, and it's an implication of a lot of inflammation in your body and that your ability to produce serotonin is compromised. Now, that relates to so many factors that deal with Uh, Inflammation in your body like diet, like the microbiome, like stress and lack of sleep. Lack of sleep powerfully augments inflammation. And it's again the reason that it's related to so many issues like diabetes and obesity and cancer risk and Alzheimer's risk. It's through this amplification of inflammation.
1: Yeah, man, this is one of those where when I see the way that people um, lead their lives and they're making choices and and it is true that back in the day, I would have been like, yo, you need to get your willpower in check. You need to really be thinking about this stuff. And I won't say that I, I think people should abdicate their responsibilities, but understanding how these cascades begin and that once they begin, you're getting hit from so many different angles in terms of taking optimal cognition and reducing it so dramatically that it becomes not impossible, but wow, you're digging a hole from which it becomes increasingly more and more difficult to get out of. Um, So I'm going to list what I think I remember from the book as being sort of the big players of inflammation and breaking this bond. Let me know if I miss anything. Um, so lack of sleep is huge. I feel like a different person. I feel like I actually have a different personality when you I have do poor sleep. It is surreal arguments in my brain where I'm like, <laughs> you know, hey, you should just have like, look, you know that a little bit of sugar right now would make you feel better, give you a little bit of energy. So go ahead and just grab a quick, you know, bit of chocolate or whatever. During the, like, if I'm well rested, that argument does not hold any sway. I'm like, get out of here. Like I have a goal. I know what I'm eating today and that's that. But suddenly that argument makes all the sense in the world when I haven't gotten sleep.
0: Can I Can I stop you right there, Tom?
1: Please. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news,
0: Because what you just said could be the one take home message for our entire time together today. You can just understand that your decision making is uh, threatened or or enhanced by whether or not you get a good night's sleep. You know, go out and buy a wearable, get an O-ring, whatever, but figure it out. Fix your room, get off the computer, Uh, don't drink coffee after two o'clock, whatever it may be. If you could just take home that one message that you just wonderfully articulated, that would be the home run.
1: No question. Um, walk me through. So we've got the inflammation. We've got lack of sleep. We've got poor decision making exacerbated. We've got our bad diet, and the inflammation is making us make worse decisions. We get in this, you know, very bad a, a negative positive feedback loop of the worse we eat, the worse we want to eat. Um, when we're locked in that vault of death how do we begin to unwind it what does that process look like
0: so that's it's a great question because we offer a lot of on ramps to better decision making and you know the the book had its genesis in this room when Austin and I were were just talking about what is the most frustrating part about being a uh, physician and we realized that you know it's kind of a three step process to get to have patients do what you want them to do. Number one, we have to learn the information as best we can. You go to medical school, you read the journals, you attend the conferences, number one. Number two, we have to purvey that knowledge. We have to be uh, good purveyors, good communicators, give that knowledge, impart that knowledge to the patient. And number three, that patient acts upon the information. We realized that nobody was talking about step three, when the patient comes back to the clinic a month later and has gained weight, blood sugar's higher, It's whatever, uh, that what do we do? We write in the chart that that patient is non-compliant. That's a kind of an awful thing to hang on somebody. It's basically pointing a finger saying, you know, you just can't carry it out. I, I did my part, hit the ball over the net, and you dropped the ball. And we realize it's time to stop that because we understand that they just don't have the decision-making apparatus working well in their brains to make that good decision. Stop blaming them. You know damn well those patients go home, doctor visit after doctor visit, they look in the mirror and they blame themselves. They say, you know, I I went to the doctor today and I I know what I'm supposed to do. I can't do it. Or I read the book. I watched the PBS special. I want to follow xyz diet whether it's keto paleo whatever it is i can't do it i crash and burn something must be wrong with me self-blame which is a very very heavy burden so we realize that their brains are, re, are need to be rewired to allow them the opportunity to make better decisions and this is what i alluded to a moment ago by having an on-ramp to better decision making and therefore Real t- and a real world example, there's that patient with type 2 diabetes gaining weight. It's not going to be helpful to give that person a, a pre-printed a sheet, a diet, and say, here you go, Mr. Jones, take this. Next time I see you, I want your blood sugar to be better, I want you to lose five pounds. That is not going to work. What needs to happen is we need to have another on-ramp to better decision making for that individual. It might be that you know this man's going to expect the diet because he's gotten that with his last five healthcare providers, but you say instead, listen, I'm not gonna give you a dietary plan at this visit because I know, likely, you're not going to follow it. And I'm not blaming you, but I wanna help you make better decisions, and here's how. We're going to first take a deep dive into how you sleep. What is the hygiene associated with your sleep-related choices? How late are you on the computer? What time do you have your last cup of coffee? What time of day do you exercise? All the things that we know are really very important for getting a good night's sleep. Does your partner wake you? Does she or he uh, have sleep apnea or kick you at night? Whatever it may be. And I'm going to give you uh, a, a wearable device that you can upload to your smartphone. We'll get a real sense as to the length you sleep, the quality of your sleep, how much deep sleep, how much REM sleep, et cetera. We'll get a lot of dynamics, and that'll give us opportunities to modulate things in your life to help you get a better sleep. Then, when that patient comes back, you've worked on the problem, which is not their diet, it's their decision-making apparatus. Now they're in a better place. Just like Tom you was saying, you make bad decisions that next day when you haven't slept it's universal, we're all that way. And it might be sleep, it might be they sleep well, it might be they just don't get out of nature enough, it might be a simple meditation program. There are a lot of on-ramps, we have a 10 a step program uh, that offer people ways of getting back to better decision making and just like we had a problem before where one bad decision begets another bad decision, we can play that to our advantage. whereby by making just one simple change, we suddenly improve our chances then of making a better decision as it relates to something else. It's like uh, uh, action leads to a a, a reaction. In this case, an action of um, of getting a better night's sleep leads to the reaction of making better decisions. Or another Newtonian law uh, that deals with exercise, that objects in motion, like your body, tend to remain in motion when you first engage in exercise program, likely it's going to help you continue that.
1: What are some of the 10 on- ramps? So sleep obviously is going to be one of them. Uh, what are some of the others?
0: Sleep is so huge and let me just you know finally reiterate that you know this is something we spend a third of our lives doing or we should. We don't spend a third of our lives exercising or eating, which are important, obviously. But so underrated in our world of trying to be productive and getting a leg up on the next person. You want to be productive? Sleep more and sleep better in terms of the quality. Um, I, you know, we, we look at a lot of things. Certainly, we talk about meditation, research demonstrates. Dr. Andrew Newberg's led us uh, in in this area indicates that. Meditation lights up the prefrontal cortex. You can do functional MRIs on people who do meditation and they can be only uh, a short period of time, six weeks. They have now lit up their prefrontal cortex in terms of brain activity. Can you imagine is what that a tonic they
1: themselves like to do impulse control? like I need to sit here, I need to focus on my breath. What is it that's lighting it up?
0: What The act of mindfulness is lighting up their uh, prefrontal cortex. And it can be mindfulness towards a prayer. It can be mindfulness towards a mantra. It can be a simple uh, breath. Uh, whatever is mindful allows the prefrontal cortex to light up. And I would submit that that is a big a goal of ours today. And that is to be mindful of whatever activity uh, we are engaged in. Uh, you know, there's... People say, oh, I'm really good at multitasking. Well, nobody can actually multitask. We go from one task to another task and then back to the first task or the third task. We're always skipping around. We're not really engaging many tasks. And our efficiency when we are so-called multitasking or engaging many issues at one time is a lot less than if we stayed on one task. Being mindful allows better decision-making. Being uh, on your smartphone during a meal leads to an increased consumption average of 200 calories because you are not mindful of what you are doing. I remember years ago, I, I attended a, a, a lecture by Deepak Chopra and, he said, and somebody asked the question, uh, Dr. Chopra, what can I do about my cigarette smoking? And he said to this person, the next time you wanna smoke a cigarette, and you should, stop what you're doing, go outside, sit down, and think about cigarette smoking while you're smoking. And what he was saying is being mindful of that act. You know, we all know that's a health destructive act. But I would submit that the reason he said that is because that individual is now not going to mindlessly smoke on the phone or during a meal or doing the, while driving. And that will be an improvement for that individual, likely he or she will smoke less, and finally make that connection to the negativity of what that cigarette smoking is doing to his or her body. So first of all, it it focuses us to dedicating a certain time to that activity in the day. So it's helping us triage our day, and of course the amplification of the prefrontal cortex activity. Meditation reduces inflammation, that's our goal meditation reduces cortisol why do we want to reduce cortisol the stress hormone because cortisol among other attributes disrupts our gut bacteria and leads to increased gut leakiness or permeability another mechanism that leads to inflammation it's why we see higher levels of inflammation in people who take uh, certain medications like non-steroid anti-inflammatories which are designed to reduce inflammation Ultimately, you're working against yourself. Uh, Acid blocking drugs and certainly antibiotics. Uh, Certainly diet plays upon the microbiome to increase inflammation as well. We call upon um, readers to keep a gratitude journal. Who knew? To take a little bit of time and to write down what you're grateful for. You know, the moment you do that, it's transcendent. Because you focused from all the things that you think you have to do to what has already happened and what it has done for you, what you are grateful for, that powerfully, like meditation, connects you to the prefrontal cortex.
1: Yeah, that one trips me out. The fact that merely by thinking about something specific, you can change your neurochemistry in such a way that it, that it has an effect on your whole body physiology, like that, that's one of those like sleep is so underused as a, you know, quote unquote treatment, uh, but incredibly powerful.
0: I, I have to say, as we're having this conversation, it's, it's like, I've never thought about this before because it, you know, it's what we wrote about obviously, but every time I, um, uh, elucidate this, it's just so powerful that we have that degree of control that simply thinking about something does rewire your brain. You know, it's the reason that professional athletes, some, rehearse you know, th- what they're going to do on the tennis court or, or whatever their sport needs to be before they go out there. They go through the whole thing. You change your brain by thinking about playing the piano. Uh, yeah, you do when you play the piano and learn a piece, but simply thinking about that piece will actually restructure your brain. It's like, as I mentioned, the Dalai Lama said that the brain we build reflects the life we live, the choices that we make. Being uh, kind and considerate and empathetic towards others takes us closer to the prefrontal cortex and away from the self-centered, narcissistic, impulsive uh, areas of the brain like the amygdala. So we, we can choose and um, please understand that you know another part of the book really as you've already called out talks about how the world conspires to take us away from that, that the pop-up ads that magically appear on our online experience, that seem to be very interesting for us, who knew, uh, um, are taking away from our ability to stay on task and really letting us believe that uh, instant gratification is the way to happiness, and it isn't. I mean, it is exactly wiring us into the amygdala and it's keeping us from really achieving what I call enlightenment, and to me, if you were to ask, enlightenment is being as connected to that gift, the prefrontal cortex, as we possibly can, because it's then that we can conceptualize the future and make decisions to pave way for a better future, and it's the key to really engaging the notion of community, of my actions being uh, imparted and having uh, influence on the the survivability and happiness of another individual and the planet as well. I mean, research demonstrates that people who engage nature, which enhances prefrontal cortex activity, are more kind to nature, are more environmentally involved, if you will.
1: One thing that I found interesting about the research that you touch on in the book around nature is that you can show somebody ten seconds of an image of nature, and they're less impulsive in their decision-making. I was like, what? How's that possible? That's as (laughs) So that's an interesting
0: uh, study, and there are a lot of them. It looks at a a technique called delayed discounting, which is really uh, used in psychological testing as a measurement of impulsivity. So are you able to basically do the adult thing, delay gratification or not? And what they did in that study was really quite interesting. They ask people, do you want a a dollar now or a hundred dollars if you wait? At the beginning of the test, everybody says, hey, I can wait. The question is, how long are you willing to wait? People were shown either images of the city, images of nature, or then just geometric images that were thought to be, at the beginning of the test, the control. But interestingly, the geometric images and the city images had the same outcome in comparison to showing people just a picture of a natural environment. Those people who saw that picture were able to say, I'll wait, I think it was up to you know 10 years to get $10 as opposed to $1. Whereas the other people that were shown the city or the geometric shapes, you know, their, their time in, in, until they said, nah, just give me, uh, give me the dollar and I'm out of here. They couldn't wait, they were impulsive. Uh, That time was a lot shorter. So that's kind of a delayed discounting is kind of a standard test for impulsivity. A new study came out in December 2020 that actually looked at the relationship between functional MRI imaging of the connection, looking at this connection between prefrontal cortex and amygdala and then measurements of impulsivity and found exactly what it is that we described. So they validated the notion that when you lose the uh, connectivity or it's at a lower level, you have more traits of impulsivity. And that relates to things like drug addiction, for example, ADHD, other issues.
1: Now, putting this in uh, a modern context, one of the things you talk about, if I remember right from the, I think you call it the 10-day brainwash reset, um, is technology and people's abusive wasn't your word my word uh, abusive relationship with technology um i think in fact this was what made you bring up the suicide statistics that the people who are addicted to um social media internet uh, i forget the exact wording but they have a significantly increased risk of suicide am i remembering that correctly
0: you are and Uh, You know, uh, addiction is defined as, uh, you know, engaged in activity that interferes with your ability to um, be productive, to care for yourself and interferes with your family relationships, etc. Classic definition and applies to use of the Internet. So it's estimated that six percent of Internet users are, in fact, qualified or characterized as being addicted that's a lot of people that's you know that's five times the population of england it's a quarter billion people who satisfy that criteria for addiction and they have up to a fourfold increased risk for suicide depending uh, on their age younger uh, is higher risk for suicide so you know the average american spends 42% of his or her day in front of one form of screen or another whether it's a, a, a pad a computer phone television and that has an effect because there's a lot of inputs into your brain that are happening during that experience, A and B. You know, It's been said that when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. You're not exercising. You're not preparing your meals. You're not interacting socially with other people uh, and all the other things that are an important part of your day. So it becomes a very uh, big uh, issue, especially when we recognize that online – our brains are being manipulated by advertisements and advertisers who want us to make decisions for their benefit, not for our benefit, not for our health benefit, uh, etc. You know, the notion of of social interaction is interesting because you know that's a social media platforms are, are a huge hack. Into our primitive desire to be social, to you know, we evolved as social beings with division of labor and you know, having each other's backs. That it, you know was effective for us and allowed us to survive. It's a survival mechanism that's being hacked into by various social media platforms. Much as our desire to eat sweet food is it, um, you know, that's ingrained in us. A survival mechanism. Our ancestors gravitated towards sweet foods because it made them make body fat which allowed them to survive during times of caloric scarcity. We all carry that heredity, that sweet tooth that makes us desire sweet. That's hacked into the you know hacked into our brains by man you know 60% of the 2 million foods at the grocery store have added sweetener not because it's you know cheap or it's Uh, you know, going to make the food have a shelf life, but because we're going to eat more of it, we're going to buy more of it. So there's a lot of hacking that goes on to some of these primitive ingrained issues in our, in our, in our brains that uh, make us behave or make us think we want to behave in certain ways.
1: Yeah. Seeing you guys put together like this sort of defense against the dark arts to use a Harry Potter term in the book, was you know a lot of really um, accessible things that I thought were fantastic. From all right, obviously getting sleep, getting some exercise, get the body moving, limiting your technology, um, forest bathing, you know, getting out, getting in nature. Um, it it is a very comprehensive look at what people need to do. One element though, I'd like to dive into. If you were going to give people broad strokes on diet. Um, what would be, if you want optimal cognition, what are the, the you know small handful of things we know we want to avoid and then the small handful of things we know we want to go for?
0: I think the biggest issue today is fructose. So it's a very interesting story, Tom, and uh, it begins 14 million years ago in the Mi- Middle Miocene period when our primate ancestors were experiencing a time over a couple million years of cold and reduction in food availability. These primates uh, had already migrated out of Africa through a land bridge because it was so cold that sea level had fallen because of all the ice being trapped in the poles. They were able to migrate into uh, Asia and Europe. And there was environmental pressure on these primate ancestors to survive in times of caloric scarcity some of them developed mutations in a gene that made a chemical called uricase that is an enzyme that breaks down uric acid such that those primates who lost uricase had higher levels of uric acid in their systems each and every human walking the planet has inherited that we don't have functioning uricase it's why amongst all mammals we have among We are among the highest in the levels of uric acid in our bodies. What does uric acid do? Uric acid, we used to think, was important if you had gout or kidney stones. That's why doctors measured it. We now know, and this is a brand new story. It's what I'm writing my new book about. We now know that uric acid amplifies inflammation. It powerfully initiates fat storage. It powerfully leads to insulin resistance. It amplifies our Uh, mechanisms that increase our blood pressure. It uh, causes our, our bellies to get bigger. All of the bad parts of what's called metabolic syndrome are amplified by this uric acid. And one of the most powerful ways that we augment uric acid in human physiology is fructose. Fructose is what caused our ancestors, our primates, to make body fat and allow them to survive during times of caloric scarcity.
1: Where were they getting it back in the day? Fruit, fruit. Whatever
0: whatever fruit they could find, and they ate an awful, awful lot of fruit when they could find it. But the fact is when you would compare those animals that didn't have this mutation to those who did, those who who had the mutation and couldn't break down uh, uric acid, built up the uric acid, survived, this was a, a mechanism whereby they made more body fat. Not that they became fat, but they made enough fat to survive. So, I'm not, it, so basically, it was survival of the fattest. The problem is that that's who we are today. We are, we, we're carrying this legacy that says when you eat fructose, you're going to make body fat. You're going to become insulin resistant. You're going to increase your level of inflammation in your body. Your blood pressure is going to go up. And cognitively, you're going to decline as well. So it's, it's a really exciting new story, and I think that what we have to emphasize is limitation of fructose in its raw form as in sugar-sweetened beverages and uh, fruit juices, and also look at other ways that we in- increase uric acid in our bodies by ingesting foods that are high in purines. These are things uh, like sardines, uh, anchovies, organ meats, et cetera. By and large, we have to do everything we can to not become insulin resistant. Our metabolism, meaning specifically how we handle glucose in our bodies, is key to our health across the spectrum of discipline. Whether we're talking about the brain, the heart, uh, any organ in the body, everything really depends on how we handle glucose. Each of us is different. So how would you handle, uh, what is your body's response to glucose uh, uh, based upon the foods you eat? I don't know, but I can tell you that if you were to get a device called a continuous glucose monitor, you would know moment to moment what your blood sugar is and how you responded to that exercise you did this morning. Whether you had, in my case, almonds versus cashews. I learned something really profound about my blood sugar based upon knowing what my blood sugar is. Uh, In various types of foods, knowing your glucose response is so fundamental to your overall health, I would say longevity, and certainly, absolutely, your brain health. You've got to know your blood sugar and how your blood sugar responds to your various lifestyle choices. Higher blood sugar translates to inflammation. Inflammation, as we've talked about, means poor choices. It means increased risk of Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, diabetes, obesity, and it means disconnection syndrome. It means cutting off your prefrontal cortex uh, ability to influence and to modulate, to be the adult in the room, the control over the amygdala. So when you ask what are the keys diet for brain health, it is any diet that's going to keep your blood sugar in check, by and large a diet that does its best to eliminate refined carbs, certainly sugars, a diet that's really high in fiber, I would say mostly plant-based. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, obviously when we get more subtle uh, influences, I would say as organic as possible, uh, I would avoid things like GMO, not because GMO foods inherently are bad, but because of the fact that by and large, foods are genetically modified this day and age to allow the use of uh, herbicides, uh, like glyphosate on them. And then we get traces of this glyphosate, which does what according to Dr. Stephanie Seneff, it changes our gut bacteria. What does that do? Amplifies inflammation. And we're back to where we started. Ooh,
1: where <laughs> can people connect with you, Dr. Perlmutter? Where's the best way to to follow along as you learn all this stuff?
0: Well, I just joined clubhouse. So that's kind of a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, Austin and I do a thing every Friday at 4 o'clock Eastern about uh, brain health, and, boy, we've been talking about everything. So for any Clubhouse members, which uh, I think we'll see a lot more of really soon, um, drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com is my website. Uh, The Empowering Neurologist on YouTube is my podcast. Uh, Instagram, I think, is David Perlmutter, Facebook, David Perlmutter, MD. But um, that's where you'll find us. The book is Brainwashed. That is everywhere. So there you go. Well,
1: I cannot wait for the next round, the next book. Uh, That will be a lot of fun. And guys, speaking of things that are a lot of fun, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.